A lot of leaders and innovators talk about disrupting healthcare, but what does that really mean? And how does one actually do it? On Life-Centered Healthcare, we dive into these questions and more, talking to innovators who are leveraging Clay Christensen's theories to transform our healthcare ecosystem. I'm Ann Summers-Hogg, Senior Research Fellow of Healthcare at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and I hope these stories help inspire you along your journey to transform health and care. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Life-Centered Healthcare. Today, we'll talk about the drivers of health and the fact that while they play a significant role in health outcomes, most existing healthcare business models aren't equipped to address them. Now, this will be a two-part episode, and today, we'll talk to an innovator who has built a new model to address the drivers of health. And then in part two, we'll speak to an incumbent transforming their business to better address drivers of health. Wherever you are in your Drivers of Health journey, you can learn from both of these perspectives. And I am thrilled to welcome Minnie Kalan to the show today. She is a founding vice dean of Dell Medical School, the founder and director of Factor Health, and an associate professor in the Department of Population Health. Minnie has her PhD in neuroscience, was previously the CIO at UCSF's Clinical and Translational Science Institute, and is an award-winning technology leader. She is among the most forward-thinking innovators I know, and you will be sure to learn a lot from what she shares today. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Minnie to share more with you about her health-focused approach at Factor Health. Minnie, I like to start with why. Could you tell our listeners why you founded Factor Health and your vision for what it will accomplish? Thanks, Ann Somers. I'd love to. So I've been immersed in health system transformation work for more than a decade and have been able to see what's possible, the improvements we're making from within the system. But in the meanwhile, as more attention has been focused on the broader drivers of health, I saw an opportunity to really re-envision where we begin in addressing health issues. So even as I saw folks in the clinical enterprise embrace some of the social and non-medical drivers of health, it was still starting from where they were comfortable, which was within the clinic, starting at a hospital, beginning to screen as necessary, referring people to services. But as I thought about the possibility, I thought we might be missing the biggest area of opportunity by starting in the clinic. And so we began by saying, what happens if you start in people's lives? What happens if you start sort of in the rhythm of the life of a mother and her child and ask in that rhythm of life, how best to support the mother in driving health for her child or how best to support the child or how best to support someone who is homebound and has a lot of medical risk factors as well as social risk factors? Do we wait for them to show up at the hospital or can we meet them where they are and sort of design around that first and then as necessary refer back to the clinic so that they are then able to get the expert professional help they need when they need it? I love how you talk about re-envisioning where you begin and really grounding the opportunity in people's lives. I think you said the rhythm of people's lives and really designing around where people are first and then going back to the clinic if that's necessary. So I love how you've really flipped the healthcare frame from starting with the traditional supply side, what healthcare is providing starting in the clinic, to really grounding your offering in demand. Now, you've built a unique business model with Factor Health, which you and your team built from scratch. What is it about your structure that separates you from 
other non-clinical health organizations in the market? The first thing just for us to come to grips with, of course, is that we're talking about a business model within a market that's really not been created yet. So whatever we're doing has to embrace the fact that the value propositions aren't clear, that the payer, the customer in some level is not clear about what they're actually going to get, let alone the mechanisms to purchase. Consumers, on the other hand, definitely know what they want, but they're not used to a health system actually giving them what they want necessarily, just telling them what to do and then waiting for things to get worse. So as we designed our business model, we took those two things into consideration. And so in our business model, we focus both on the customer, on the, on the payer, which is primarily healthcare insurance. And, and we actually start with them, not because they're the most important, the person we're serving is, but recognizing that the market was still to be developed. We wanted to be really clear about the major pain points that healthcare payers have so that knowing that they would have to go through considerable hurdles to pay for a novel kind of solution, we would begin by solving some of their hardest problems so that they would be more motivated than not to actually pay in the future. So we start with a pair. We make sure we understand their interests in terms of populations, conditions, and timelines, which is a really big deal. So how fast do they need results? Then we go back to the opportunity space and we look at the science and the literature and the evidence and we take a really pragmatic lens around what we think is actually doable. What are the areas of opportunity? And we sort of go back and forth. And then once we come to a an understanding of an area, a condition and a population for which the healthcare payer is really feeling strapped, so they, they would actually do more than they normally do to put effort into paying for a solution, then we think about the people that are affected by that condition. And then we actually stop thinking about the payer or the customer in a sense, and we think about the consumer. And then we we really design around the consumer's interests. And what that means in the world of drivers of health is that we don't come to a problem saying, we're a food solution for a person, or we're an alternate workforce, a community health worker solution, or we are a physical activity or behavioral incentives or financial incentives solution. Instead, we think about all the pieces that are necessary to meet the person where they're at, and then we stitch all of those together getting some of the parts of the solution from existing providers where that's available and other parts of the solution, designing them ourselves if that is in fact what's necessary. I love the multifaceted approach and how you are grounding your value proposition both in what the customers need, like you said, predominantly the payers in this situation, and what the consumers need. And in healthcare, unlike other industries, it's so critical to design around both and so few business models do. So it's fascinating how you've how you've done that. And actually, as you were talking, I was thinking, wow, if I still worked in industry, I'd want to go work for many. <laughs> <laughs> just in how you really you really do align the business model, just as the theory says you should to have an effective value proposition. And I loved what you said about you design around the consumer's interest. It's not about coming at the problem with here's a solution around food or here's a solution around community health workers, but really doing the deep work to understand what's the progress those people are seeking to make. And then how can you craft a solution that addresses their needs as well as the payer's main pain point? 
Another thing I'd love to hear you talk more about is some of the health outcomes that you're most proud of that have resulted from this model. Now, for listeners' awareness, Factor Health is fairly new. You have not been around for tens of years, and you're a relatively new model that launched right amidst the pandemic. So could you talk about some of the outcomes that you've achieved in a fairly short amount of time? I'd love to. What a great invitation to talk about some of the results that we're most proud of. So let me start with some of the best work is done, comes about serendipitously. And in fact, we were beginning a meals program in, uh, in spring of 2020 and in March of 2020, actually. And just as we were supposed to begin a meals program for people with diabetes, uh, which we are now doing in a different format, the pandemic struck and the very people we wanted to serve became even more isolated than before. And these were clients of our local Meals on Wheels of Central Texas, a great partner organization of ours. And they had to huddle and start creating new ways to support the people they were supporting. And we had an opportunity, we had to pause the meals program, but we had an opportunity to sit back and and think about the needs of the people we were serving, realizing now conditions like loneliness and isolation might be even more um, of a problem to, to sort of tackle than before. And we had been thinking previously about the role of human connection and empathy in a world where we were reaching people outside the clinic. And we then took some of those ideas and very rapidly through April designed a totally novel program. I'm really proud actually about the timeline of doing this kind of sort of program design implementation, a clinical trial results. So we started in April and the results I'm going to talk to you about were published in February of the following year. And that, if anyone who knows who does uh, clinical trials knows, that's kind of crazy talk. <laughs> And they were published in JAMA Psychiatry, so really well, right. you know, really well recognized, uh, peer-reviewed publication. I'm really proud of the science. Here's what happened: we went in and we took the person's viewpoint, right? Just as I said, the consumer's viewpoint. We thought about uh, how to serve them with connection and empathy. We used the telephone because we were not going to be entering their homes to set up video terminals. Turned out it was the best thing we could have done. Most of the the work that we compare ourselves to still does video tele-engagements and ours is just using the telephone. And we found people that were passionate. In this case, they were mostly students, 17 to 23-year-olds that were passionate about giving back, concerned about people in their community. And we ended up with about uh, 15 to 16 of these wonderful volunteers. We paid them a stipend eventually for their time. And they took on each a panel of about six to nine uh, people. And we put a telephone call-based empathy-focused program in place where, again, thinking about the person at the end defined every part of the program. So for example, if we're going to be reaching out to people, we wanted people, the people we were reaching out to decide what they wanted to talk about, how long they wanted to talk, when they wanted to be called, even things like the frequency of calls, which usually when you design a a trial, you want to, you think that the dosage is, you know, the number of telephone calls. And instead, after the first week, we let people decide if they wanted five telephone calls a week or if they wanted two or three. And we believe that, that giving people that agency is also a big part of the solution. And so we implemented a randomized control trial where we compared what happened with those that received our program versus those that didn't. And we found definitely effects on loneliness, on on some standard scales of loneliness, as we expected within four weeks. But what really surprised us was the degree of effect we had on some clinical measures of symptoms of depression 
and anxiety. And those are really important because those are our measures that our customer, our healthcare payers do respond to. And so those large influences on depression and anxiety uh, really caught the attention of, of a lot of folks when the paper eventually came out in, in 2021. And we are now building on that in the midst of what I think is going to be a really exciting results from a trial where we kind of double down on the mental health effects, but ask, can we increase the value proposition further by using mental health as an entry into supporting people with chronic conditions. In our case, it's unmanaged diabetes. So that's one example of results that we sort of stumbled into in some ways, but our focus on the customer and consumer kept the discipline going, and which is why I think we were able to get the results that we saw. That's so impressive. And I know one thing that listeners are probably wondering after, how do I replicate this, <laughs> is how did you pay for this effort? So in thinking about the business model, you talked about the value proposition of focusing on both the consumer and the customer. When you talked about how you executed it, you covered the resources that you leveraged. So the phone was critical as opposed to the virtual video that many others are using. The passionate students were another critical resource. And then I believe we have talked about before how some training was done for those callers so that they were well-versed in listening and empathetic conversations. And so as I think about the four components of the business model, I'm wondering about the profit formula. So could you talk a little bit about how the study was paid for? The study was paid for through our, so we, one of the reasons we're able to do this work is we have an amazing partnership with a foundation in Texas called the Episcopal Health Foundation, whose own strategic plan focuses on health, not just healthcare. And so, I mean, it is a, a match made in heaven and I am tremendously grateful for their bet on me, on Factor Health, the team. So they helped to de-risk this work by supporting the program definition and also most importantly, allowing us to be flexible. Can you imagine if we had had an NIH grant, we would not have been able to pivot in the way we did from March to April and deliver the results that we did. And so the, the addition of foundations are another funder that we have for our youth program is the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation. These foundations really end up providing the risk buffer for testing these out. Now we're looking at who pays for it. And I'll tell you what the models look like and, and what conditions look like. So just for mental health, and one area of great interest is for maternal health, where not only are there challenging issues on postpartum depression, but turns out not many have really looked at the impact of and resolution of mental health issues during pregnancy itself. So even before giving birth, and then how that, if you can improve mental health before giving birth, how does that impact postpartum depression? And so that's an area of great interest where we have ACOs and, and some Medicaid plans that are very interested in deploying this kind of talented layperson approach to manage the mental health, in this case, for maternal and infant outcomes. So that's one. The other place, another sort of model for implementing it is through FQHCs or other clinic systems. Now, as long as their payment mechanism incentivizes results rather than the number of visits per se. And so that's another line of interest where they are already talking to, to see how we can implement this at scale. We added the diabetes focus, which is a trial we're currently in that I'm really excited about because 
if we're able to demonstrate uh, amplified impact, not only on mental health, but on managing people's unmanaged diabetes, then the value proposition just is blown out of the water. And, and we're excited about where that takes us and, and even more doors would open. I think a key takeaway there for listeners is the power of the alignment between what you as a founder are trying to do and your funder's goals. When you talked about the role of found the foundation and how they really provided a risk buffer and allowed you to be flexible because you both had the same goal of improved health as the output. And now because of that and the foundation you were able to create with the Sunshine Calls program, you have all this interest from other payers. So it really goes to show the role that philanthropy can play in bridging a business model from its early days to a more sustainable long-term trajectory. So thanks for explaining that. And as I've said, you've built such a unique business model that's grounded in what both consumers and customers really desire. And you've shown in a very short amount of time that your interventions improve health and it's cost-effective. So I'm sure many listeners are wondering, what can they learn as they go to replicate your approach? So my question for you is, what would you advise other innovators who are looking to impact drivers of health through new business models? Thanks, Ann Summers. The first piece is really the piece you emphasized when we began, which is in order to solve a problem Start with a problem, which sounds so obvious, but I think we just don't do that enough. In addition, in this space, you've got to solve the problem based on specific perspectives and then kind of do a dance around those to settle on something that, that serves multiple different, I mean, actually multiple different customers. You have the paying customer, maybe uh, an insurance, an insurer, you have people, the consumers who are also paying customers because they pay with their health in effect. And then because these are emerging areas, so some of the work we're doing, for example, is in early kidney disease. When we look at the effect of produce on albuminaria, there the science is still is still developing, for example. And so I think actually one of our major customers is the scientific field in general. So they need evidence in a certain way so that others can then build on the research and continue to to push these uh, sort of scientific ideas out. So really it's important to think about all of the people that have problems to be solved that all come together in the service of improving health. So that's the first thing I would say is think of everyone involved in the problem and don't try to average those out, but put yourself in the shoes of the people whose problems you're solving. Another group, by the way, are the potential deliverers of the future, providers of the future. They have problems to solve as well. So that's the first thing I would say. And then the second is definitely look at the science, take a pragmatic lens on how to review evidence, convince yourself that something can actually work in the timeframes of interest. A lot of things that we believe in are true, generally speaking, but when you apply them to the timeframes of the settings of interest, you might question it a little bit more, which doesn't mean that they may not be true in the future, but it exposes you to the questions that remain to be answered. So that's another one. And then thirdly, we are ourselves always open to people reaching out and on our work, uh, share as much as we can about the elements 
of our work that we believe made made our work successful. We have projects, uh, one of the other pieces of results that I didn't talk about was around influencing child diet by supporting caregivers and parents. Uh, we have a lot of food-based work as well, all of which we'd love to share information about with like-minded folks. Awesome. To that end, what is the best way for our listeners to learn more about your work at Factor Health that you didn't cover today or to connect with you if they are working in similar spaces and have learnings to share? I think one of the best ways to get in touch is just search for Minnie Callon at Dell Medical School on Google. You'll find me. My email address is public, but it's mkahlon at austin.utexas.edu. You can look for me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at mkalon, M-K-A-H-L-O-N, and and get in touch. Thank you so much, Minnie. Thank you for coming to share the story of Factor Health, your incredible business model that you've built and the outcomes that you've achieved. A couple of the things that you said really stood out to me, and I'll recap those for our listeners now. To solve a problem, start with the problem. It's not something we do enough of. And make sure that you're involving everyone in the problem, not averaging them out, but really putting yourself in the shoes of those who you are seeking to serve. You mentioned the importance of starting with the science and identifying the gaps and the questions to be answered. And I'll leave listeners with your comment around the importance of connecting and collaborating with others to make progress. So... Many, you truly practice what you preach and thank you so much, not only for sharing the great work of Factor Health, but for launching it and growing it and for the impact that you are making. Thank you, Anne Summers. That was a great summary. I need to record it for myself. <laughs> well, luckily you'll have it on this podcast. So there you go. Thank you so much, Minnie. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for listening to Life-Centered Healthcare. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And for more of the latest in healthcare, check out our website, christiansoninstitute.org. You can sign up for our newsletter and read our latest industry insights. Until next time, have a wonderful day, everyone.